0: So in these first two Sundays of Advent, we're looking specifically at the truths that while on earth, Jesus was fully God, that's what Pastor Josh preached about last week, but simultaneously, he was fully man. That's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, we're going to be working through that truth, and not just that, but there are the truths that Jesus was and is eternally God, and while he was on earth, he was Perfectly, man. And there's a big distinction to make there. You know, as the scriptures point out, and as Josh mentioned, Christ was there before the foundations of the earth. Jesus didn't just become God-like while he was here. That wasn't a task that he was assigned. He wasn't angel adjacent while he was here on the earth. No, he was and is divine, so he can make the claims that he did like I'm the bread of life, and I'm living water, and no one can come to the Father except by me. Only someone who was God incarnate, God in the flesh, could bear the load of sins that we cannot. So that's the hope and assurance we have during this season of Advent, is that Jesus was and is eternally God. And now with that in mind... It's fitting that we're going to land in a passage today in Hebrews that on the flip side of things speaks to the real humanity of Jesus and not only a fact that he was human, but the perfect life that he lived as a human. So tonight, I'm going to focus on two main points that I want you to wrap your head around, okay? If you could put this sermon into two buckets, it would be these buckets. The first one is that God's love for humanity is immeasurable. So that'd be point number one. And the second point would be, our humanity is validated and redeemed by Jesus's humanity, okay? So God's love for humanity is immeasurable and our humanity is validated and redeemed by Jesus's humanity. Let's go back Let's read the first part of our passage again. Again, we're in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. If you've got a Bible, Maddie's going to have it up on the screen too. No biggie. So verses 10 through 13. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies, that means the one who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, the ones who are being made holy, all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, as many of you know, even if you haven't met me yet, many of you know that I'm a dad. I'm a daddy to three wonderful, beautiful children. None of them are in here. I thought I was going to be able to do a little banter back and forth with my daughter, Olive. Nothing. She's usually very talkative if she's in here. So Olive is eight. She's our oldest. Uh, Russell is four. And then Dean, our little buddy Dean, he's almost four months old. And he was here somewhere with my wife, Sarah. I think they're back there. Yeah uh yeah you can it's okay you can look he's back there sleeping hopefully uh and thank you i'll tell you what dean was sick recently uh dean had rsv and that was really scary for a minute boy when little ones get to coughing like that and you're like can you breathe you can feel like you don't know what to do but he's doing much better now so thank you to everybody that was praying for him who reached out to us via text bonnie brought us some coffee and some cookies we had some We had some friends that really, really care for us. So thank you for taking care of us in that moment where we were coordinating a lot of things with a sick baby. So we have our three kids, and Sarah and I just we love them more than we could have ever imagined. And what's become clear to me is that over the past eight plus years of being a dad, is that I would really do anything for those kids. And that sounds very basic, of course, but it's one of those interesting things about being a parent is you don't like read a manual that helps you understand the parameters by which you should care about your kids you don't get a bunch of documentation that says hey you need to understand these things so that you care about your kids when they're born if you're a a good parent if you're someone that has love in your heart they're born and you just want to take care of them and do things for them and that comes in the form of the little day-to-day things like refilling water bottles when they need to get refilled very simple It's a simple joy to get you some more water, buddy. No big deal. It could be reading that second and third book or maybe fourth and fifth when you thought you were just gonna be reading one book on the couch. You know what? It's a joy to be able to do those little things. Uh, It could be helping Russell to change his shirt when he just gets one drop of water on it and he thinks that he's got a whole puddle that he stepped in. I'm telling you, I think Russell like Right now, Russell's in a phase where he doesn't understand the concept of material drying. Like, he can't wrap his head around that, so he'll, we'll be brushing his teeth, and I'll be helping him, and we've got a little cup that he can get a little sip of, swish it around in his mouth, get out the spit, no big deal, but boy, if he gets a little hasty, and one little drop falls on his shirt, dad, 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 I gotta change my shirt, I gotta change my shirt, and that's like, Russell, it's gonna dry in two minutes, bud. He just can't get that right now. We're changing a lot of shirts. We know it's not gonna be forever. It's not a big deal. He will grow out of it. But that's the phase we're in right now. So my love for my kids takes form in the simple day-to-day things. And I would hope that it would also take the form in bigger, grander things that I haven't had to do yet. Like I haven't had to save my kids from a burning building. I haven't had to rescue them from a bunch of vagrants that are trying to like get them or something like that. Uh, But I would hope, God forbid, that never happens, but I would hope that if something, you like that word vagrants, don't you? Yeah, Uh, I would hope something like that would never happen, but if it did, I would be ready to jump in and do whatever it took. That exists in me, that I care about my kids in a way that I would do anything for them. And so here's the thing. I'm simply an earthly man that has a finite number of things in my sphere or possession that I take care of and can hold dear. So you could conceptualize, like, of course, a human man who only has a few things that he really should feel that strongly about would want to go to those links to take care of those things. But here's what's an infinitely incredible to me, is that God the Father the God of all things, the creator of all things, of all the universe who possesses all things and needs absolutely nothing, somehow in his great love and mercy feels that way about the whole of humanity times name whatever crazy number you can think of. So the inkling that I have for my kids as a human man God is somehow so vastly concerned with us and humanity that we have this entire Bible that is filled with him reconciling us to himself. Look at how he shows this. Verse 10, I think is the perfect snapshot into it in our passage, and I really like the way the New Living Translation phrases it, so we'll put it up here on the screen. It says, God... For whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So, really think about it for a second. It's not just words on a page or up on a screen. If you can hear me right now, and you are currently a Christian, if you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the many children that that passage talks about, you are one of them. You are one of those children. And I'll tell you this, as somebody that grew up in the church, so I grew up in a Christian home, going to church since I was little, there are a lot of things we say in church that can kind of feel Redundant and cliche, and I fall into the trap. Admittedly, this is on me of it feeling a bit cheesy sometimes. And so, through the years, when I've heard things like, We know when God sent Jesus, He was thinking of you, or when Jesus was up on that cross, He had you in mind. And I have fallen into the trap of being like, oh, That feels like just a, a dramatic way to try and pull somebody in, a way to manipulate their emotions. But look, this is one of the passages where it's clear that even with me thinking of it as this thing that we always say as Christians, look, this is one of those passages that just like Pastor Josh talked about last week and really all throughout our Genesis series that God already had all of this work in mind in the garden when he promised that the seed of the woman, that's Jesus by the way, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. So yes, in whatever incomprehensible way that the mind of God works, he was already thinking about gathering children, about gathering sons and daughters and bringing them into salvation through Jesus. And I just have to imagine that when he was doing that and when, in whatever way that God's mind works, he was formulating this, that he wasn't just thinking of hypothetical group of humans A or group of humanity in this period of time, number 224. Like, that in some way, in some way God could look through time and see you sitting in this room with your blue shirt on and be calling you, spending his time in whatever way he does that, calling you to him and to salvation through Jesus. And it's only by his grace that that can happen what a picture of immeasurable love that that's been set in motion since before we can even fathom. And really, this language is present all throughout scripture. I wanna take you to a few verses here. The first, they're gonna be up on the screen, so you don't have to do a quick flip. Man, I feel like when I was a kid in church, you had to do those quick flips, the pastor would be like, John, this, 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 and he's already on to the next one, and you don't even have your Bible open. Um, the first half of first John 3, 1 John 3.1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. Ephesians 1.5.6 says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us and the beloved one. John 3.16, anyone? For God so loved the world, he loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or how about one more? And this one, I think, might actually be the clearest representation of what we're talking about tonight and what I want to convey to you tonight. It's Ephesians 5, 7 through 8. Starts with, For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. I've always kind of thought of it in my head that way. Like someone might die for a good person. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I think that verse or those verses really capture the wonder of it all. And what God has been doing all throughout time. You have to realize that post Adam and Eve's fall, humanity wasn't this collectively beautiful, perfect gift that someone just stole from God and because of our immense worth and how great we were, he just had to have us back. No, it's in the Father's rich mercy and love that although we rejected him, and rebelled against his word, and we built our own little kingdoms and areas of life where we really just live for our own glory, in spite of all that, he sends the Son into the world, wrapped in flesh, what we're talking about in this Advent season, to make a way for us to be in his family. Amen? And just as our scripture says here, through this act, we become brothers and sisters To Jesus. Look at verse 11. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So it's a very unique and kind of a difficult truth to really figure out the logistics that the Jesus who was and is God and that we call Lord is also, because of his humanity, our brother. And so, as much as we can attempt to dive into the mind of God, uh, let, let's hope to understand these words as we read to him. So let's read on. Uh, we'll, we'll read the second half here. And if you are a note taker, this is where you can begin to write under your second bullet point. Uh, verse 14 starts with, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Uh, you know what I think is an interesting thing throughout history you know if you if you ever ponder on um, the differences in Christianity and other mythologies or worldviews of gods or godlike beings or things like that, is that in multiple cultures in different times, especially in Greek mythology, throughout different traditions. There are a lot of stories of a god or the gods coming to earth in human form. You like, might remember these from studying Greek mythology when you were a kid or something along those lines. It doesn't make sense to give a bunch of illustrations of those all here. You're welcome to go peruse the internet if you're interested. But in a lot of these stories, it, they simply disguise themselves as humans. Do you see what I mean? these gods or these godlike figures disguise themselves as humans to simply observe the weaker, filthier, less superior human race or they they do it to trick humans or they do it to help out a human that they think is their like one of their favorites to like do bad things to another human or even weirdly they do it to like seduce humans there's really weird stories of these godlike figures coming to earth and wrapping themselves in some sort of, sort of human disguise to really just do weird things to humans like we're in this earth-filled zoo and they're just observing us. Um, and it really just paints a pretty dire picture and a hopeless picture of maybe what other cultures throughout history have thought of the relationship between God-like beings and humans and us here on earth. Uh, that the only reason that they would have any uh, reason to be around us would just be to manipulate us. And then we read verses 14 through 18 here in Hebrews chapter two, which talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus and in stark contrast to any other story of some other God, here's what it says and think about this in conjunction with other God-like beings who would simply want to disguise themselves and manipulate us. Here's my effective paraphrase of 14 through 18. Well, since the children the Father is saving are made of flesh and blood, Jesus will share in that. And since the curse of death under the dominion of Satan holds so many in slavery, he'll destroy that power. And because he'll one day rise again and reclaim his previous glory at the right hand of the Father... And he'll want to be merciful and faithful in how he speaks on behalf of us. He'll become like his brothers and sisters in every way. And because he'll want to help those who are tempted, he'll face temptation and suffer so that he can understand. Now, what a beautiful image that is of, of one of the gods and how they relate to humanity in stark contrast to other traditions and myths Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 20:28, 20, He says, "Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." It's a very different picture, isn't it? Our God did not come to serve, but to be served. He comes to earth to join humanity so that he can serve humanity, and then lay down his life for humanity. This is all of service to bring us back to the Father. So listen, if you're somebody here tonight, and I guarantee there are some of you in this room, because guess what? I've been in this place before, and you have ever wondered, or you currently are wondering and questioning, how could A God or how could some infinite being even have a relationship with people well here you go we're talking about it right now he's he's not some far removed tyrant who has kept this celestial distance in between us no and in Jesus we see a sacrificial loving servant who didn't just come to dwell with us he came to be one of us Just as verse 17 says, so he could be like us in every way. You understand the significance of that? It's a really beautiful truth. Fully God and fully man. It's pretty incredible, amen? Uh, You know, I think one of the hardest parts to wrap my head around in the Bible, maybe you've been here before, maybe you haven't. I have to think we're not too different in the grand scheme of things. When I read the Bible, and this is honestly kind of a simple thing, is it can be difficult sometimes for me to read a story or verses in the Bible and remember that these are real people that lived real lives and did real things and had real emotions and had families and they ate food and they had to work and they had to do all of the regular human things that we do. And I kind of mean that in the sense that it's difficult for us really in anything. If, if we didn't observe something or we don't have video evidence of it or if you didn't post it, did it really happen? Like if we didn't observe something, we can kind of only comprehend it based on the way it's represented in whatever way it's documented. You know what I mean? Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, Maddie, go ahead and put that picture of that gentleman up here. Who would like to say out loud with their voice who this is. Thank you so much, Ben. Woo, that was with gusto, too. Thank you, Ben. So this is Abraham Lincoln. I learned about Abraham Lincoln in history class. He was our 16th president. Seems like a really great guy. I also know, that you can put the next picture up, that he went to a place called Ford's Theater, and he went to watch a play. I know that he did that. That's a bullet point that I know of, he might have done it other times, but he definitely did it in 1865. You can put up the next picture. I also know that this guy is John Wilkes Booth, and that he evidently shot the president in said theater in 1865, and sadly assassinated our 16th president. Very sad, a really unfortunate thing, a terrible time in our history, and we look back and we remember Abraham Lincoln. Uh, What could he have done if he had been here longer? So I know these things, but I know them just as bullet points like it all happened in five seconds' time. What I don't understand in reading that in history class is I can't, I can't sense the pandemonium in the theater than when a shot rang out and people are running around and trying to figure out what's going on. I, I can't experience that, but it had to have happened. I can't feel the confusion as people that were way over on that side of the theater see some commotion going on up in the presidential box and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they just hear yelling and screaming. I don't, I don't know what those 10 to 15 minutes were like, but those surely had to have happened, right? And I definitely can't feel what, what his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, was feeling when fear seized her body and she sees her husband slump over and she goes over to him But that must have happened. That was a real man with a real family who really died that day. I don't experience those things. I have to remind myself of the humanity in those moments and that it's not just a couple of bullet points in a history book. So, does anyone else have have that sort of thing happen when you read the Bible? Thank Appreciate that hand. I I see that hand. See that? I'll go, old Baptist preacher, honey. I see that hand. it's what it happens, keeping with the season of Advent, you read uh, that Mary and Joseph, maybe you're familiar with this story, they had to travel when Mary was pregnant with Jesus back to Bethlehem from Nazareth because at that time, everyone had to register for like a census, and so everybody had to go back to the place where they were born. So Joseph was from Bethlehem, so they had to travel from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. And so you read it, and you could go like, okay, They've got to travel, so they pack up a few things. They hop in the Dodge Caravan. You know, they're about to have a baby. So they have got the car seat in there. They zip on over to Bethlehem. They pop out, kind of do the registering stuff. Mary goes like, oops, about to have a baby. What about that barn over there? There's Jesus. And it kind of reads like that's went down. But that's totally not what went down, right? The trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have taken like a week or so They're traveling by foot, donkey at best. Mary's like every month pregnant. So you tell me the humanity that's tucked within all of that. In the book of Luke, that whole time from they have to travel to register to Jesus laying in a manger because they didn't have another place is three verses. You see what I'm saying? So as we read, as we talk about thinking through the story of Lincoln or thinking through the story of Mary and Joseph traveling, I think we would do well that we go to the Gospels and we have to remember the humanity of Jesus in those moments, right? Look, I don't i don't think it's just me, but it's easy to read the Gospels of Jesus's ministry and get caught up in thinking that at every point in time, and this will sound silly, but like I think it's kind of how I think of things, that at every point in time, he's sort of glowing and floating around, and everything he's doing is so godlike and so vastly different than what any human has done that I take my head understanding that he was a human, and I subconsciously minimize it to just he happened to be in human form. You know what I mean? And so I don't really grasp his humanity and what that means, I just think, well, he happened to be in a body for a while, but he was surely out there just doing God-like things during the whole time. But look, go back to verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people, for since He himself has suffered, when He was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So I think we would do well to look at the Gospels of Jesus and make sure we take moments when we read those four or five verses that look like they happen in a snapshot of time. And yes, we we read them with the wonder that, that Jesus is fully God, but I think we should also be captivated and take solace and rest and comfort in the fact that Jesus was a man, a human, who within those same verses where he surely is God, would have felt the same things we would have. He had to be like us in every way. Uh, we know all too well what it's like to be human, right? It sounds kind of silly, but that's our only existence. But look, we feel it all, the ups and the downs of life, the times of joy, the times of sorrow, the great victories that you have at those times, and then the devastating defeats that you also experience. You have times when you feel absolutely assured of everything that's going on in life, and then sometimes when you don't know which way is up, You don't know which way is down, right? Anybody been through times like that? Maybe recently. Some of you have gotten new jobs this year. Congratulations to you. That's a really wonderful thing. You got a new job. It's been very exciting. It's been very fruitful. It's been rewarding. You're experiencing some of the joy and the fulfillment that comes from accomplishing goals and doing hard work. There's a lot of excitement in that. And I think that's a beautiful thing And I just have to think Jesus experienced some of those things as he was traveling, as he was talking to people, as he was seeing people come to realize who he was and the salvation that he was bringing, or even more simply, before his public ministry, all the work that he probably would have done with his earthly father, Joseph, and all the ways they worked with their hands and the crafts that they knew. He had to have felt those feelings. I have to think that some of you moved within the last year it's a lot of folks moved in the last year now some of you just moved you just kind of popped down the road 5 10 miles not not a huge deal but not a little deal so you made a move some of you have uprooted your whole lives to move here to St. Louis you might have moved here for school you might have moved here for work you might have moved here for this church specifically or all of those things combined in some form or fashion. Um, And I have to think that there are times when you have felt so excited and so eager at the adventure that is to come in your life. But I also think you've probably had those nights where you've sat there and thought to yourself, what am I doing? Like what what are we even doing here? What's going on? You miss the familiarity of leaving home, You miss driving down the roads you used to drive down. You miss that coffee shop that you and your buddy always used to meet up at. You miss family, and you miss friends. And that's okay, too. Because I have to imagine, Jesus, who during his public ministry, seems like he sure did travel quite a bit. It almost seems like he just didn't stop. I'm sure he felt the excitement and the adrenaline of going to a new land and speaking to people and seeing their eyes illuminate but that also he probably had times where he wanted rest and he just wanted someone familiar with him and he wanted some sense of what it meant to be home, whether that was here on earth or whether that was a longing for the coming glory that he was gonna reclaim. I have to imagine he felt those same things. There are some of you where this Christmas is gonna be the first one that you're spending without somebody that was really special to you. And there's a lot about who they are and they were that made Christmas what it was for you. And that's not going to be there this year, and that's going to be really sad. Uh, Sarah and I have felt that. Sarah's grandmother passed away last year, and it's just become really clear to us that Thanksgiving and Christmas on one whole side of the family, it's just not going to be the same. It just won't be what it used to be. There will have to be some new tradition that comes along that we're able to, to hold on to and grasp onto. Anybody else felt those things before? When you start to see these wonderful things that were such a mark of your life with your family, they, they sort of start to fall away whenever someone's gone. And I know there's going to be a day in the future where we have these wonderful new rhythms and traditions, and there's a lot of joy in that. But right now, it just feels kind of sad, it really does. If you're in that boat, I think it's, I think it's not trite to say that Jesus felt sad, sadness too. You know, the story of Lazarus uh, surely has its, its Jesus is God moment. He raises Lazarus from the dead. But it 100% has its humanity in it too. Look, the verse John 1135, Jesus wept, doesn't just exist to be the answer to the fun fact of what's the shortest verse in the Bible. It exists because Jesus and Lazarus were friends. And here's what the Bible says prior to that verse. Jesus travels to the area where Lazarus was because he'd heard that he's sick. So he travels there, he gets there, and Lazarus has actually already been dead a couple days. So Mary runs out to him, falls to his feet, kind of says like, why didn't you come earlier? Starts crying in front of him. Other mourners come out, they're mourning and crying. Jesus sees them, and you know what it says in the Bible? It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then it says... Jesus wept. Those were real human emotions. That wasn't just the God of the universe attempting to placate us and giving us a little nugget of something that we would experience. You don't think he really felt that in that moment? Lazarus was a real person who was really his friend. And Jesus was both lamenting with the mourners, but also angered at the fact that death had not been fully destroyed yet by him. Look, our Savior truly understands what it means to be human. And our life experiences are known and felt, not just observed and considered. Do you see what I mean? Because you could conceptualize that I would assume the God of the universe could observe my humanity and consider that and somehow get how I could feel these things that he created in me. No, 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 no. It's been known and felt by Jesus as a human. But there's one difference, right? And this is where we'll wrap up. Jesus lived a perfect human life, a righteous, holy, completely sinless human life. And so If in the equality we share with Jesus, if in our humanity we were equal with him in terms of as humans, we were walking down the same path of existence and living a human experience where our paths vastly start to differ, is that as we walk down the road of life, we take the step off the edge of the cliff and we sin and fall into temptation. Jesus stood at the edge of the cliff faced the tempter, and did not sin, and did not fail. And that's where our humanity differs, amen? And that's the crux of it all. That's why we're celebrating Advent. That's why we as Christians should celebrate Christmas with more gusto than anyone else, right? Yes, there was a baby born in a manger 2,000 some odd years ago, and it's a wonderful story, but it's not just a story. See, ever since Adam and he fell, humanity has been longing for someone to make right what had been wrong, to make holy what was not holy anymore. And humanity was longing for this. And if you're already a Christian here tonight, that's what you celebrate. All the other things are wonderful, but this is what we celebrate, is that the Father God saw that it was only fitting to have Jesus live a perfectly human life so that all the sins that we cannot bear will be shouldered by him as he suffered and died on the cross. And that would make us sons and daughters in the family of God, amen? Because of that perfect human life. And now, we, justified by his life and his death and him rising again, we can walk forward in the assurance that as we go down the road of life, that we have an eternal Lord who has saved us from our sins, but we also have a brother who has experienced the same things we have and can mercifully plead for us to our Father in heaven because he faced those same temptations, yet he conquered them. Amen? Let's pray.